My text for the sermon today is from 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. <clears throat> Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. This Lord's Day, we come to the conclusion of our study in 1 John. And what a conclusion it is. For in it, John neatly summarizes for his readers all that he has been teaching throughout the whole letter. The Apostle John has written to these struggling Christians in Asia Minor because certain false teachers you will recall, had crept into the congregations and were leading them away from a love for holiness, a love for the brethren, a love for the truth as revealed in Christ and as revealed in His Holy Word. These false teachers emphasized a kind of existential religion of mystical experience and knowledge. Truth, they affirmed, came not by God revealing Himself in history, but rather they affirmed that truth came by mystical experiences with God. These false teachers did not want to be bound by historical revelation of righteousness and truth. They did not want to be bound by an historical revelation of love and of grace. They did not want to be bound by an historical revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. No such historical revelation would suit them. They were free thinkers. They wanted to keep it that way. Dear ones, although our religion must be lived out in our behavior and in our speech... The truthfulness of our religion is not determined by what I think or what you think, or what I feel or what you feel, or by what experience I have had or by what experience you have had. The absolute certainty of the Christian faith rests firmly upon the authority of God speaking in the Holy Scriptures. Why must you believe and practice what this book says? Why are you bound to obey what is recorded in this book? Because it is God speaking in it. And you see, dear ones, this is the only foundation upon which anyone can build a Christian life. Listen very closely to these following passages as to the persuasion and the certainty that is expressed herein. In Romans 4.21, speaking of the faith of Abraham, listen to what the Apostle Paul says, and being fully persuaded that what he, that is God, had promised, 
he was able also to perform. Abraham was fully persuaded. Abraham did not entertain doubt that God could keep his promise. The promise that he had made. Abraham believed that God would keep his word. And he was fully persuaded. Listen also to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12. There again, hear the strong and certain affirmation of absolute certainty. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. It's not a possibility that God will keep what I have committed, Paul says. It's not even a probability. It is an absolute certainty that God will keep what I have committed unto him against that day. And finally... In this regard here, what is stated again by the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 13. Speaking of the saints of old, the Apostle says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They didn't see the realization of all of the promises while they lived. But nevertheless, not having seen, they believed and were absolutely persuaded that they would receive them. Upon what authority? Upon what basis? Upon the authority of God speaking in His Word. Dear ones, the burden of the Apostle John in this letter of 1 John is to teach that the Christian faith is an historical faith both in its revelation and in its application. It is revealed in history and it must be lived out in history. Consider what the Apostle John says in the very first chapter of 1 John, verses 1 through 4, about the historical nature of this faith that we have embraced. It's not some mystical pie-in-the-sky faith. This is an historical faith which God has revealed. Verse 1 through verse 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled 
of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. You cannot, dear ones, have a joyful faith if it is not a faith based upon a historical revelation of God. And if it is not a faith that is lived out in history, you cannot have joy in your Christian life. It is based upon that certainty that we have joy. That God has revealed Himself in history. In fact, that is what the Apostle John says in 1 John 5.13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. You see, our certainty and our confidence, we know that we know that we have eternal life because God has revealed Himself in history. He has revealed Himself in His Word. He has revealed Himself to us through His Spirit by giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. And with that persuasion and that confidence comes certainty and assurance that no man, that no angel, that no devil can take from us. Beloved, mysticism leads to relativism. That is, mysticism leads to the view that you have your view and I have my view. Let's just agree to disagree. Relativism. There's not really any real standard. We'll just agree to disagree. And you know where that kind of relativism leads? It ultimately leads to skepticism that I really can't know, after all, what the truth is. I can't really be certain or sure of anything. By whatever name mysticism may call itself, whether yesterday, today, or tomorrow, it is not the Christian faith. You can always tell when you're speaking with a mystic. They do not want you to compare the historical revelation with other portions of the historical revelation. They do not want you to go to the Scripture and say, well, this passage means that based upon all these other passages. They're very uncomfortable with that. They would prefer to say, well, according to my view, or that's just your interpretation, rather than going to the Word of God and systematically determining what God says in His Word. That's how a mystic argues and thinks. 
They're very uncomfortable with citing history, how God has revealed himself in history, not only biblical history, but history outside of Scripture to see what faithful Christians have believed and practiced and taught. Mystics are very uncomfortable with that approach, looking at what has been taught by faithful Christians throughout history. For you see, dear ones, history frightens mystics because it gives them no boundaries. I'm sorry, it gives them boundaries and limitations by which they do not want to be bound. And that, my dear friends, is the philosophical foundation of Gnosticism as well. Don't bind me by a historical revelation. Don't tell me that I have to believe this or that because that's the way God revealed himself in history. The Apostle John writes, in order to demonstrate to these struggling Christians that mysticism leads only to uncertainty, whereas a biblical historical Christianity leads to certainty and confidence in the life of the Christian. We come to my first point this Lord's Day. And that is the one great truth taught by John in this concluding remark in his letter is this. The one great truth that he teaches in his conclusion to the letter of 1 John is this. When religion is not based upon historical revelation and historical application of the truth, it is not the Christian faith, but it is in reality idolatry. It is idolatry. I've read the text for you already, and I will not do that at this time again. In our text, 1 John 5.21, the apostle with great affection addresses these Christians as little children. Now, when John refers to these Christians as little children, he is not speaking to them in some kind of condescending manner. He's not belittling them as if to say, all right, kiddies, you ought to know this by now. What's wrong with you? That's not the attitude that the apostle communicates when he says, my little children. To the contrary, little children is a term of endearment and affection used even by the Lord Jesus Christ with his own disciples when he shared with them that last supper before he went to the cross. When he said, little children, yet a little while I am with you. And so here is a spiritual father speaking to his children in the faith. Here, likewise, before John sends this letter off to these disciples of Christ in Asia Minor, he reminds them that they are very, very much loved by him. How this so clearly addresses, dear ones, by way of application, the need for us as parents, and I will, again, as I often do, particularly address this to husbands and fathers, because I believe there is where we see 
Christianity began to really work in our homes when fathers and husbands grasped the nature and the application of the faith and apply it in the home. But as I apply this, husbands and fathers, we need to work diligently at speaking and acting affectionately toward our wives and toward our children. Not simply to assume that they know that we dearly love them, but to communicate that in word and in deed. Not to assume they know it, but to give them tangible reasons by what we say and what we do to know it again and again and again until they almost become tired of hearing it. If such a thing could happen. You know, this is the way in which in the Song of Solomon, which speaks in the song of a relationship between a husband and a wife, but speaks of that greater relationship between Christ and His church. You see the terms of endearment, the loving affection that is communicated between Christ and His church. And there, my dear friends, we find the example that we should be following in our homes. Hugs, kisses, touching, affectionate language are the means by which husbands and fathers draw their families to follow them and make the family service in the home light and easy, yea, even enjoyable. Encouragement, help along the way. This is how we continue to oil the wheel of our family as it continues to turn for greater service. John sums up the Christian duty to God and man in the following way. All of our duties to both God and man are summarized in this simple statement. Keep yourselves from idols. Is John concluding this letter by throwing out a new idea that he has not up to this particular point in the letter at all mentioned? Or is John rather using a term, namely idol, to represent and summarize what he has been teaching all along throughout the whole epistle? I believe that he is teaching and summarizing what he has been saying all along when he says, keep yourselves from idols. He's not throwing a new idea at the very conclusion of his letter to these believing ones in Asia Minor. I believe John had much more of a broad use of the word idol in mind when he commands keep or literally guard yourselves from idols. Set a guard around your affections. Set a guard around your speech and your behavior so that you do not allow any form of idolatry to sneak in to your life. We need to ask 
what is an idol in its most basic sense? Well, the answer to that question is that it is replacing anything in our affections, speech, or behavior which God has revealed in His Word as true Christianity with a counterfeit. What God has revealed, replacing that with any counterfeit is idolatry. Whether it's simply in our desires and affections, whether it's in our speech, or whether it's in our actions and behavior. You see, dear ones, idolatry may be unintentional. It may be done even at times with good intentions. But an idol takes God off of His throne and places in some way the creature upon that throne. Whether by way of man's invention, man's work, man's reason or thinking, man's will, or man's affections. Why does God forbid man from making images of him? Why does God forbid the making of images of any of the persons of the Trinity in the second commandment? Why? Because they are all lies. They deceive and they lead man away from the truth about God by limiting the infinite God to the work of man's hands, as if man could in some way picture God, the infinite God, as if man could in some way put God in a box by making a diagram of Him, or a statue of Him, or a painting of Him, as if you could take your camera and try to put in that one picture the infinite God. You see, this is the essence of idolatry according to Romans 1.23. It says concerning these whom God gave over to their very depraved hearts, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They changed the incorruptible God into an image of a corruptible beast or creature. You cannot set boundaries and limitations around God. He is infinite. And so any thing, any image of God is a lie. And dear ones, so it is with every sin or error by which man forms a counterfeit work of his own hands. It doesn't matter what the sin is that we might commit. It doesn't matter what the error is that we might believe. If it's contrary to what God has revealed, we exchange that which is incorruptible for that which is corruptible. And we're going to consider in the rest of the sermon exactly how this plays out in our lives. But before we do, let me simply make a couple more Notes. 
Dear ones, idolatry is very, very subtle. We are so prone as sinners to want our own way and to do it in our own manner. That's the essence of idolatry as well. Let me do it my way, the creature's way, not the creator's way. We're so inclined to trust in something that we can see with our eyes rather than in the invisible God who has revealed himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Thomas, we think and express by our thoughts, words, and deeds, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's idolatry. God has revealed himself. To not believe what God has revealed is to accept a counterfeit, another image of our own thinking or our own making. That is idolatry. You see, dear ones, we may not throw ourselves down before a statue of stone. But if you believe John's command to guard yourself from idols has nothing at all to do with you or with me, you're more deceived and I'm more deceived. We're all more deceived by our idols than we possibly can realize. This passage speaks to every one of us. Keep yourselves from idols. John does not attribute the power or glory to man when he declares, keep yourselves from idols, as if the power to do so was simply a matter of man's choosing to do so. Man does not inherently have the ability to keep themselves from an idol. Every man will naturally do so apart from the grace of God. He will follow. He will make his idols apart from the grace of God. He's inclined that direction. The power to overcome the idols in our life is the power of Christ's death and the power of His resurrection applied to us by His Holy Spirit. You remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, he said, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If we were to stop there, we would think that we could actually accomplish our own salvation. If there was nothing else in the Word of God that told us we were helpless, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But the verse continues, For it is God who is at work within you both to will and to do His good pleasure. And so it is in this passage. Keep yourselves from idols because it is God who is at work within you both to will and to do His good pleasure. And I would comment finally on this first point. This is a matter of gradual sanctification in the life of a Christian. None of us have attained or will attain in this life a perfect sanctification to where we have put away every one of our idols. 
those idols cling to the heart until our very death. And we continue to war and we continue to battle them. But by God's grace, we continue to battle. We continue to war. We don't give up. We don't fall down and stay down. We struggle because we know our hearts, but we know the grace of God revealed to us in Christ Jesus. We know that where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. And that sin shall not have dominion over you. Our second main point is John's application of idolatry to the life of the Christian. John's application of idolatry to the life of the Christian in verses 18 through 20. The application of idolatry is made in essentially the same three areas of the Christian life which John has time and again addressed throughout his epistle. The applications of idolatry are in the areas of holiness, love, and doctrine. In each of the verses that follow, verse 18, verse 19, and in verse 20, each verse begins with, we know. In other words, we're certain of this truth. We're confident, we're persuaded that this is the truth. These are not doctrines. These are not teachings that are up for grabs. We're certain of this. Each of these assertions about the Christian life, dear ones, give to us areas not only that we're to believe and to practice but they also give us those areas in which we can entertain idols. And so I ask again, as we conclude our study of 1 John, I ask again those same three questions that I have asked many times throughout our study of 1 John. Number one, do you love holiness? Number two, do you love God and your brethren. And number three, do you love doctrine? Do you love the truth? Because if you don't, you have fallen into idolatry. The very first area, then the very first point in chapter 5, verse 18, I ask the question, do you love holiness? I read for you that verse before we continue. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Here is a certain affirmation, dear ones, that those who have been born of God sinneth not the sin unto death spoken of by John in verse 16. You remember last Lord's Day, we spoke of the sin unto death. We mentioned that true Christians can never commit this sin unto death. 
True Christians can never commit the unpardonable sin. They can never completely apostatize, turn their backs upon the Lord, despise and hate His holiness, despise and hate God, despise and hate their brethren, despise and hate the truth. Why? Why can't they do so? Because of the love of God. Who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Paul asks in Romans chapter 8, and then he goes on to say, in effect, no one nor nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's why we can't completely fall away from the Lord, because of the love of God. Furthermore, we cannot fall away completely from the, from the Lord, completely turn our backs on Him because of the will of God. In John 6.39, it is the will of God, Jesus says, that I raise up everyone whom the Father has given to me to save. I raise them up on the last day. I lose not one of them because of the will of God. A Christian cannot apostatize completely and turn his back upon the Lord. Because of the power of God, a Christian cannot do so. For Peter says in 1 Peter 1.5 that we are kept by the power of God. This is not a, a power that has limitations. This is a power that has no limitations. We are kept by God's power. We cannot completely fall away, dear ones, because of the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God. God cannot lie. He has promised when we believe to give us eternal life, not a temporal life, not a conditional life, but eternal life. Because of the trustworthiness and faithfulness of God. And that's what we find in Romans 4.21. It says that Abraham believed God. Because he considered that God was able and would keep his word. And finally, we cannot completely as Christians, we cannot fall away from God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is imputed to us. Because we are not saved on the basis of our own good works. We're not saved on the basis of our faithfulness. We are saved on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And because God finds no fault, because there is no fault in Christ's righteousness, we can never fall away from Him. It is true Christians may fall into sin. It is true that Christians may fall into periods of doubt, and even suffer from lack of faith and weakness of faith. It is true that Christians may allow roots of bitterness to spring up in their life toward a brother. It is true that Christians may affirm certain truths to be errors. But they cannot. Christians cannot completely and permanently forsake Christ or the true religion. 
They cannot habitually live in sin contrary to what they know to be the truth. From our text, we look at the pers- from the perspective of what God has worked in the life of everyone who is born of the Spirit. And there we find in our text, He that is begotten of God keepeth himself. He that is born of God keepeth himself. And that's simply the same point that I made earlier. It's not saying that we have this this power in ourselves to keep ourselves from falling into habitual sin or committing the unpardonable sin. It's not saying that we possess inherently that power. It's talking about the grace. It's talking about the principle of life that God has worked within us. Is it not true in the life of a Christian, dear one? Examine your own life as you listen to what I'm about to say. That when you fall into a sin that you know to be contrary to God's will, that you cannot remain there, that you live in agony and misery, that you live in torment of mind until you deal with that sin, until you confess it. We all know that as Christians we cannot continue to live in sin because of the grace that's in our life. Because love for God's commandments has been sown in our life. Because we find such great joy in keeping God's commandments. And we find the greatest misery, even though we do so, to our great shame, we find the greatest misery when we break His commandments. You see, the plight of the Christian who walks in disobedience to God's commandments is expressed by David in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what David said about himself. He said, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Have we not all to some degree experienced that in our lives? But on the other hand, listen to the joy. Listen to the expression of a Christian who has fallen into sin. Again, from the lips of David in Psalm 54. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against thee thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit Thus, dear ones, because of who God is and because of what He has wrought in our lives, 1 John 
chapter 5, verse 18 says that the wicked one toucheth him not. That is, he toucheth him not to eternal death. This is the, the, the wicked one cannot mortally touch him to take away the salvation which God has imparted to him. He toucheth him not. And that's exactly what the Lord told Peter in Luke 22, verse 31. He said to Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. See, Satan may sift us. He may put us through the ringer. We may feel like we are being refined to the very last nth degree that we can't take anymore. But God gives even the enemy that kind of a power not to destroy us, but to refine us, to sift us. Because we find in the very next verse, Luke 22, verse 32, that he cannot destroy the wheat, even though he may sift the wheat. For the Lord says, and I've given permission, but when you have returned, after you have fallen, and when you have returned, go forth and strengthen your brethren, because you will get up. You will rise again. There's the confidence of the Christian. Jesus does not leave us in the hands of the enemy to destroy the wheat, but to sift it alone. And so I ask you, dear ones, do you hate sin? Whether in your own life or in the life of others, is that a growing attitude in your life that you're more and more aware of how much you really hate sin? Do you despise not only sin, but do you despise the temptations to sin? Are you growing in, in fleeing temptation? When you see temptation coming your way, are you running to it? Are you running away from it? And do you, dear ones, long for heaven because of your struggle with sin, because you know that when you reach heaven, there will no longer be that struggle with sin? If you do, if you can answer, I'm growing in those areas by God's grace, then you know that you're also growing in keeping yourselves from idols because you are growing in your love for holiness. And if you write down this text, you will be able to confirm that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 7, 8, 9, and 10, various types of sin are called idolatry. Murmuring, complaining, tempting Christ, fornication, all of these sins are called idolatry. If you love holiness, dear ones, if you delight in God's law, keep yourselves from idols. The second question, do you love God and the brethren? In verse 19 of chapter 5, 
the apostle says, and we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Herein John asserts that there is a clear distinction between the brethren and between the world. We who believe in Christ for our only hope of eternal salvation are begotten of God. That is, we are of God. We are of Him. Whereas the whole world, the unbelievers, lieth in the lap of wickedness, or more accurately, lieth in the lap of the wicked one. And so here are two spiritual fathers. They who are of God lie in His lap, and they who are of the devil lie in His lap. You see, dear ones, the rich mercy that God has bestowed upon us. Because He has so loved us, there come certain obligations because of that love, which the world cannot know of and which they cannot perform. But because we know the love of God in Jesus Christ, they are our obligations. And the first obligation that is upon us is that we must love God. We must love God, not by our mere profession, but our desire to commune with Him. And a lot of these things I'm saying, I've said in sermons in the past through 1 John. But this is a conclusion. And we're wrapping it all up. You see, there was we're not only in with Jesus Christ, we've not only been joined to Him, but we are, as a result of that union, to have communion and fellowship with Him. Because that is what the union points to. No one is brought into union where communion is not expected, where that is not the goal whether it's a marriage or whether it's membership in the church or any other covenantal relationship. Union is to look forward to communion. And so if we have settled for simply union with Christ, if we're simply complacent and satisfied, I've been joined to Jesus Christ, and that's where we leave it, then we're not loving God as we are commanded to love Him. We're not enjoying His communion. Some ways in which you can ask yourself, am I growing in my love for the Lord? Is simply to ask yourself, am I growing in my love to meet with Him daily in secret worship? Is that something, is that a time that I look forward to? Because I am before my God. I am before my Savior, the lover of my soul. And I can pour out my heart to Him. And I can hear Him speak to me through His Word and by His Spirit. Are you growing your love for family worship? Is that a joy and a delight to you? Or is it a secret worship and family worship a great burden? Do you find yourself having to to make excuses for why you didn't have your secret worship this day? or family worship the next day? Or is it a priority in your life to spend that time with the Lord God? What about Lord's Day worship? Is this the high point of your week and are you communicating that to your children to gather before the Lord each Lord's Day to worship and adore Him? Those who are enjoying the Lord, 
Those who are growing in the law for the Lord can't wait to be in his presence. You don't have to drag them and pull them. They run. They flee to Christ. That's how you know you're growing in your communion with Christ. I ask you, dear ones, what idols exist in your life and mine that keep us from enjoying the Lord because anything that keeps us from that communion has become an idol in our life. Whether it's pleasure, whether it's cares and concerns, or whether it's responsibilities or sin, it's become an idol. Keep yourselves from those idols. What about love for the brethren? See, we're also, we have the obligation to love the brethren because we're of God also. How do we treat our brethren? Do we love the brethren so much because we love their father and ours so much? You know, John states so clearly in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? John also says, if you can't love the brother who you can see, how can you love God whom you can't see? If we are not compelled earnestly and humbly to pray for the brethren, even those who have sinned against us, if we are not moved with compassion to show mercy to those brethren who are poor, who are ill, who are widows or orphans, who are divorced, who are unable to find work through diligently seeking it, I'm sorry, though diligently seeking it, how can we say we love the brethren? How can we say we truly love them? If tears, dear ones, do not fill our eyes and a brokenness issue from our hearts over rifts and divisions within the body of Christ, how can we say we love the brethren? See, one of the sins that will keep us from loving God and loving the brethren is called idolatry, but under the name of covetousness. In Colossians 3.5, covetousness is called idolatry. And covetousness leads to discontentment, preoccupation with self so that we don't care about the needs of the brethren, so that we don't make time for the Lord to spend communion with Him. Covetousness. Flee covetousness. Keep yourselves from idolatry, dear ones, in this regard. And finally, I ask, do you love doctrine? Do you love the truth? In 1 John 5.20, we find these words. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. In this last verse, John gives us 
a certain affirmation concerning the doctrine of Christ. And I asked dear ones, is love for the doctrine of Christ growing in your life? Are you learning to appreciate more and more what God has revealed in His Word to be true? Because, dear ones, we cannot love God until we love the truth. How do we know how to love a God whom we don't know and whom we have not learned to know from the revelation of His Word? How can we uh, love the practice of truth when we don't know the truth? How can we do what is right until we know what is right? Scriptures tells us that we're to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, the Gnostics professed a faith in Jesus Christ, but upon investigation, it became very apparent that their Christ was not the Christ of the Bible. Their Christ was neither fully God nor fully man. Their Christ was not a Christ that could save them. He was not the Christ of the Bible. Dear ones, we must be lovers of the truth. We must buy the truth and sell it not. For to compromise the truth is to fall into idolatry. And this is particularly applicable to the whole area of worship. I don't have time to explore this very far today. But we know from the second commandment, that any worship that we offer to God that is not authorized by God, that is not found in His Word, that is not found in the New Covenant, that does not have His blessing and sanction, is idolatry. Whether it's an image we put up in a building, a picture, or a banner of a picture, or a cross, If we put it up and use it as an artifact, as a means of worshiping God, it is idolatry. You see, in Exodus chapter 32, Aaron made a calf, and the people fell down around it, and the scripture says they worshiped it. It doesn't mean in that passage that this became a god like Baal, that they were worshipping one of the gods of Egypt or one of the surrounding nations. They were simply making a representation of God because in that same passage, it says that this was a feast unto Jehovah. But they tried to picture, they tried to introduce into worship something which God had not authorized nor commanded. And whatever we offer to God which He has not commanded, He will not approve of. And that goes not only for external form, but that goes as well for internal heart. If we do not offer to God our heart along with the right form, it is not worship which God will receive and approve of. God wants our heart, He wants our speech, 
and he wants our behavior to conform to his word when we worship him. And to do otherwise is idolatry. I close, dear ones, by reading for you from question 43 and 44 of the Shorter Catechism. As to our motive, as to our motive in obeying the Lord in all of these ways, do we think that our obedience and fleeing from idolatry and keeping ourselves from idolatry, do we believe that that's the basis upon which God saves us? It cannot be. We cannot perfectly keep ourselves from idols. Though we strive, though by God's grace we repent of our sins and confess them, we cannot perfectly do so. And so if we are ever to be acceptable before God on the basis of anything we do, we will be lost. If that's our attitude, we will perish. You see, in this part of the Catechism, it states, what is the preface to the Ten Commandments? Before we even get to the law, even before we get to the commandments themselves, what is the preface to the Ten Commandments? The preface to the Ten Commandments is in these words, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. What does the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? The preface to the Ten Commandments teacheth us that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, therefore, we are bound to keep all His commandments. Because He has become our God by covenant, because He has become our Savior through His matchless grace and mercy, Therefore, we are bound to keep ourselves from idolatry. Let us never forget, dear ones, that it is on that basis alone that we keep ourselves from idols in thought, word, and deed. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730 by fax at 780 468 1096 or by mail at 4710 37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E D 
M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.